So good morning. I'm Ben. I lead the elder team here. I think they still call me the pastor. Uh, glad to, I'd love to meet you this morning. If I haven't, um, right after, I usually try to position myself like a good Southern Baptist, which I'm not a Southern Baptist, but some of the, they figured some things out, and one of those is where to stand to meet people and the most people, and so I stand back there. Um, so please drop by. If I haven't met you, it's your first time. I would love to do that. So this morning, uh, we've been going through the book of Romans. I will be there next week, uh, picking that back up. But this morning, this is uh, National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And uh, I have felt burdened from God for months now to talk about this topic. I haven't preached on it in a while. And this seemed like a good time. Uh, there's never really a great time because it's a dark topic and it's heavy. But by the time we're done this morning, I don't think anybody's going to be smiling for various reasons. Um, and so I, I want to say a couple of things to preface what I'm going to say, and then I want to pray and ask God to help us, and then we'll get into some scripture together. Um, so the first thing I want to say is that this is not a political issue. It has been framed as a political issue by the world we live in. But from God's perspective, which is the perspective we care about, it is not a political issue. Uh, I think who you vote for is the least interesting thing about you. I aggressively do not care who you vote for, and I'm only concerned about your attitude and orientation towards Jesus and what God says and what his opinion is on things. That is what I'm concerned about. I am your pastor, not a political pundit, and this is not a partisan church. Where'd the lights go? Oh, there we go. Wow. <laughs> careful. <laughs> Being careful. Uh, so we're not a partisan church, okay? I do not care. I, as I said, I aggressively do not care if you're Republican or Democrat or some in some space in between those um, independent libertarian, whatever, okay? Um, I don't care, and I will not be speaking to you from a political perspective. I, I'm working very hard not to do that, and let me tell you, it's hard. Even some of the categories you have through which you look at this issue are not biblical categories. They are political ones, and you don't even see it. So I'm hoping I will irritate everyone by the time we're done because I'm not using your categories, Okay? I'm, at least I'm trying not to. I hope I don't slip into it. Um, the other thing I want to say is that I know for a fact there are women here in this room that have had abortions because you've told me over the years. And I'm assuming if the statistics are anywhere close to accurate, there's many more that I don't know about. And I am very burdened this morning for you. I do not want to add one teaspoon of shame to you this morning. I, it would break my heart. And so I want to speak to you for just a second and say that if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. That Jesus, it was said multiple times this morning already, Jesus has paid the price and all of your sin is on his account 100%. We have a tendency when we see our own sin that we 
If the grace of God is not in that conversation, in that moment, our soul wants to reduce things down to shame. And we respond to shame either with anger and defensiveness or with retreat. Most men go into the anger category. Not always, but most of the time when you feel ashamed, you get angry and defensive. But we also tend to retreat. And both those things are tragic to me. Because I want to actually ask you, number one, would you receive the grace of Jesus for you? And there'd be no shame over you whatsoever this morning. But also, I actually want to invite you to join me in your heart. Not physically up here. I will never do that to you. All right, But join me in your heart that other women and other children would not go through what you went through. And that God would so speak over this issue into our culture that there will be less suffering, not more of it. So I actually want to ask you to join me okay, in your heart. Um, all right. Third thing is I am not, I'm going to try not to just talk to the people who are nodding at me this morning. The people that I know are going to be like, amen, say it. I want to talk to the world. And I want to talk to young people that are confused over this issue. All right? Um, so if you feel like I'm talking past you this morning, that's probably on purpose. All right? Okay, so let's pray because we need help. Lord Jesus, we ask you, God, I ask you first for an atmosphere of grace this morning. That there will be a spirit of freedom and life. God, that you would help us to be people that think clearly and biblically. But God, help us also to be people that ooze out the good news of Christ. That the gospel, the good news, that it would be happy news. That we would be a church that is characterized by the happy news of Jesus Christ. God, that we are not, we do not have to be on the hook for our own sin. But instead, you have paid it all every last bit of it has been paid for by you and so god help us to be inviting people that invite the world in to the family of god and god i pray it would start here this morning in the name of jesus amen all right so it's winter time my hands are dry my pages won't flip so I want to start in a place that probably is going to make you uncomfortable. That's on purpose. <laughs> um, I want to start with the most common argument leveled against pro-life advocates, with, which is that no one has the right to tell a woman what to do with her body, especially a man. I am aware that it is offensive to many, the fact that I'm just standing here talking about this at all in our culture. So I want to deal with that up front. At the beginning of our current sermon series in the book of Romans, when we were going over chapter 1, you might remember, I took a couple of weeks to talk about sexuality and developing a theology of the human body and the value of the human body. You might remember that. Um, I don't have to, I'm not going to re-preach that. I already got seven pages of notes. I'm not using all those pages. Relax. We're not going to be here for three hours. But... I think it's important that we acknowledge that the human body is sacred and no one actually has the right to force medical procedures on you. We need to, it's okay for us to say that, Christians. 
I don't know if you remember a time, a recent time uh, during the, the years of COVID when uh, the vaccine came out, and that was controversial. I mean, why not just bring up all the controversial stuff in one sermon, right? Alan's like, go ahead. Let's just load it all in, pile it all up, and set it on fire, all right? But you remember some of you, and many people, not just you, but some of you were bothered because you didn't want the vaccine and you felt like the government was telling you you had to. And what did you say the reason was why the government shouldn't be allowed to force you to get, a, get the jab? Some form of my body, my choice. Remember that? You probably didn't use those words because you made the connection at the time. But you said something close to that. The man shouldn't be able to come to me and stick, give medicine to me that I don't want. Why? What's the theological reason for that? Is your body is sacred and you are a steward of your body. And that's a high, sacred, holy thing, not a small thing. And we should have the freedom over that. I'll give you a verse. All right. It's actually right after the part that we, when we were talking about sexuality and the body, right at the end of that section, he says this. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Your body is sacred, and it's meant for worship. It is an essential part of you and what you are. When I, in, the, in your eternal future, wherever that is, heaven or hell, when people say, that's Susan, they will not just think of Susan as this ephemeral, uh, invisible spirit that is like in the, immor- you know, the primordial soup of the universe that has no distinct form or look. They will know what Susan looks like, and she will look like Susan. She will have a body, just like Jesus still has a body. It is an essential part of you, and it's sacred, and it's meant for worship. But what does this also say? It's not yours. What God says is, yes, your body is sacred, but he says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. So my body, my choice is mostly right, but it's really more like God's body, your choice. He has made you a steward of it. You're running the thing. You're the one that moves it around and does the stuff, and it is you, but you are not autonomous. No one is an autonomous human being. God has opinions about you, and that includes your body. God is not concerned with rights. He's concerned with righteousness. Rights is a political category, and we can talk about that sometime, but that is not how God talks. What God talks about and the categories God is concerned with is righteousness and unrighteousness. Obedience to him, disobedience to him. Those are God's categories. And that's how you need to think about everything. Jesus did not concern himself with his own rights as the king of creation. 
He laid down his rights and concerned himself only with obedience to the Father. So the question for you regarding your body is not what rights do I have, but how can I glorify God with what I do with my body? Everywhere your physical body is mentioned in Scripture is mentioned in a context of worship. Your body is to be used to glorify God. Really, your whole self, you were created for that. It's what you are shaped for and meant for. So that's the question. I want to reframe the question for you. Away from the idea of what rights do I have towards what is the righteous thing to do, right? That's a whole different conversation. So let's look at Psalm 139. This is our main text this morning. If you have a Bible, you can just hang out there. Psalm 139, let's look at 13 through 16. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So David says to God that he was being formed and shaped inside the womb. He was David in the womb. He wasn't David after he was born. He was David the person inside the womb being shaped not just by mom, but by God. And we know, okay, we know that there's science. I'm going to mention this in just a minute about DNA that kind of, but, but ultimately what David says is at the end of the day, God is the one forming and shaping and creating in the womb. And it is not just kind of like the raw materials that will one day become David. It is David in the womb. That's important. In fact, verse 16 says, I think, an astounding thing, which is that before he was in the womb, God called him David and shaped and formed his days, called him and decided this is what David the king is going to be. He's going to be a king. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. He's got a calling. He's got a purpose. Long before David even existed in the womb, God called him David. Now, in my opinion, that settles the whole argument. We're going to keep going. We could stop there and we could just throw away the rest of the pages, but we won't because I prepared them. All right? So the other problem with the simplistic my body, my choice argument is that there is another body involved here. There's your body, which is sacred and holy and meant for worship. It is you. It is not incidental. It is not secondary to your identity. It is part of you. But then there's another body involved. Then we could put it this way, if the child in the womb could speak for itself, she would also say, my body, my choice. That baby would say, well, I've got a body too that should not be violated. That's also equally holy and sacred and should not be messed with. 
Science tells us, I think this is a scientific issue uh, along with being a theological one. Science has helped us tremendously here. We know now that when dad's DNA and mom's DNA come together, there's kids here, so I won't say more than that, but you know what I'm talking about. When they come together, it is not a combination of DNA. It is new DNA. It is distinct. There is a third person in there. And it is a distinct person. At eight weeks, all the systems of the child are on board. There is some, ev- there is some evidence now that they dream at eight weeks. That's crazy. They feel pain when a needle touches their heel when they do blood samples. You can see the heel pull away when they try to get a blood sample. They feel pain at eight weeks. I don't think there's actually a serious scientist out there at this point that is trying to argue that it's not alive. But what they call it is living tissue. It's living tissue. They don't want to assign personality and personhood to that tissue. They don't want, in fact, I would say for, I have found a mountain of quotes. I didn't put them all in my, in my notes this morning because it was too depressing. I just want to read you one. This is a startling admission from David Boonin in his very influential book, A Defense of Abortion. Here's his argument, if it isn't, it's more of an admission. He says, in the top drawer of my desk, I keep a picture of my son. This picture was taken on September 7, 1993, 24 weeks before he was born. The sonogram image is murky, but it reveals clear enough a small head tilted back slightly and an arm raised up and bent with the hand pointing back toward the face and the thumb extended out toward the mouth. You've seen that image probably a million times. He says, there is no doubt in my mind that this picture too shows my son at a very early stage in his physical development. And there is no question that the the position I defend in this book entails that it would have been morally permissible to end his life at this point. And this is not the only quote. I, I literally could fill pages of quotes from people writing in scholarly circles and in popular circles the same idea over and over and over again. They are not arguing that it is not alive and that it is not a human. They are saying it is a human, it is alive, but it is more a moral good to kill it. This is the insanity of the world we're living in right now. Make no mistake, the greatest minds and strongest public advocates of abortion rights are not arguing that life doesn't begin at conception. I almost don't even need to talk about it anymore. They admit that it does, and that is, quote, morally permissible to end its life. This is insane because at the same time, there's the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act. You know about this one? It's been around since the 70s. If you come across a bald eagle nest and harm the eggs, you can be fined $100,000 and do prison time. And if you keep doing it, the penalties get worse. That's a good law, by the way. Why Why would we have such a law? Because we know if you destroy the egg, you destroy the eagle, and we like eagles, we like the bird, so we should protect its eggs. 
And so we will put you in prison for messing with the eggs. If you drive drunk and hit a car and a pregnant woman's baby dies in her womb, you can be charged with manslaughter. Mom survives, baby in her womb dies, you can be charged with manslaughter because of the baby. But if mom goes to the hospital and says, I want to abort this baby, she can do it freely and we should all be okay with it. Do you see the insanity of that? We care about turtles, we care about birds, rightly, and we care about drunk drivers killing babies in the womb, rightly, as we should. But when it comes to abortion, you're not allowed to talk about it. It's madness. I think the more foundational question is whether or not this living human is a person. Does she have a soul? Similar to Psalm 139.16, which we already read, we have a prophecy from Jeremiah regarding his calling as a prophet. So Jeremiah, God is speaking to Jeremiah here about Jeremiah, okay? Jeremiah 1.5, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. When did he appoint Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations? Was it when he was born and there was a prophet there who spoke over him? No. God appointed him a prophet to the nations before he was formed in the womb. He was Jeremiah before anyone knew he was Jeremiah. Luke 1, 41 through 45. Who was the first prophet he prophesied that Jesus was the Messiah. It was John the Baptist, but not when you think it was John the Baptist. It was before that. It says, And when Elizabeth, who was carrying John the Baptist in her womb, heard the greeting of Mary, who was carrying Jesus in hers, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are the young women, are you among women, excuse me, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. John the Baptist in the womb was still John the Baptist, the prophet, who was sent to do one thing, which is prepare the way for the Lord. And he was doing it before he was born. Think about it. It's incredible. Genesis 5.3 tells us, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Okay, so Seth was Adam's son. It says that Seth was in the image of Adam, meaning when you look at Seth, you can see Adam. Anybody ever met my son, Owen? What does everybody say about Owen? It drives, I'm sure it irritates him. Who do you look like? You look like your dad. His whole life. Little mini-me running around. Now he's not little mini-me. He's tall, big, tall mini-me. That's all he's saying. Seth was in the image of Adam. Well, who was Adam in the image of? It says it right before this. And also in Genesis 2, 26-27, but let's read 5-1. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, or Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. 
Seth is in the image of Adam. Adam is in the image of God. When you look at Adam, you, you see the image of God in Adam. We are all descendants of Adam. We are all made in the image of God. We, when when the, the universe looks at human beings, they don't just see creatures. They see something, they see a reflection of, the spitting image of, a chip off the old block of God the Father. Just like when they look at your kids and see you. When all of heaven looks at us, they see God. And that's a mystery. But one thing's for sure, this is where our value comes from. We are more valuable than the birds and the turtles and the dolphins. There is something intrinsically valuable about human beings that when God, we are an instrument of worship just by breathing and existing. What a wonderful thing. You don't have to sing to worship. Just exist. You're made in the image of God, reflecting his glory. Later, after Noah's flood, God's establishing his people again because he had to erase the whiteboard and start over. And he puts into place a law, the first law. Before, long before the Ten Commandments and Moses and all that, we have a law from God. And he says, I want you to look at the, what's the foundation, what's his reason. God often doesn't give us a reason for his commands, but here he gives us a reason. Okay, he says, it's Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for or because God made man in his own image. The problem God has, the reason God bans murder is because there's something special about mankind, and that is they are made in the image of God, and when you murder another human being, you are murdering the image of God. And he says, we're banning that up front <laughs> from the get-go. And we can argue about this is not going to be about another controversial issue, which is capital punishment. We're not getting into it, all right? But I just want you to see the reasoning, the reason God gives We're made in the image of God. The eagles and the turtles are not. I love animals. I love my dog. I love, well, I'm not going to admit out loud that I love my cat. I tolerate the cat, but deep down I pro my, my family would say, you like the cat better than anything else. And I will be sad when they die. It will be a sad time. But I will not mourn my dog or my cat in the same way I would mourn a human being. We all know this is how things are. It's why we're okay with laws like I described before. We know it. So the question becomes, I think, what do we do about it? I think number one, and I don't want to minimize this at all, we need to pray. The world likes to criticize Christians because they talk about praying for each other all the time. And they'll say, all you want to do is pray, you should do something. And I agree we should do something, but the first thing we should do is pray. Praying is doing something. Someone who criticizes you for praying does not know God. Because God is the one who can do the most. 
And if God is real, and He is the Creator, and He is all-powerful, He is the one that can do the most. And so He is the one we go to. So don't minimize prayer, and please don't feel guilty for saying to somebody, I'm praying for you. So we need to pray, because only God can fix this. Number two, give money and time. There, is, there are many pregnancy support ministries around. There's one that I know, and we've had a long relationship with over the years, which is now called the Pregnancy Network. It used to be called like something hard to say and type on the Internet, like the Greensboro, Greensboro Crisis Pregnancy Center and something else. Thankfully, they shortened it for you. Um, give money, give time to them, volunteer there. They do amazing things. Number three, I think, is prophetic for us this morning. I hesitated in saying it, but I'm not. I'm going to say it. What are you willing to do to save a baby's life? There are some people here in this room, I believe, this morning, right now, that need to foster or adopt. I'm just saying it. I think if you're looking in the face of just under a million babies a year just in the United States being killed in the safety of their mother's womb, in the face of that, knowing that information, a Christian needs a reason not to do this, not to adopt, more than they need a reason to adopt. You follow me? I'm not saying everybody should do it, and I'm not saying you should feel guilty if you don't feel called to do it, but you need a reason. You need to actually ask God. Get your heart to the point where you would be willing to say to someone, instead of having that abortion, let me take your baby. I'm too old for this. I don't have time for this. This sounds hard, but let me do it. My favorite kind of abortion protest is when people stand quietly outside of abortion clinics with a sign that says, I will adopt your baby right now. I have gone through the process. I've been vetted. I'm ready to go. I have the paperwork. Let me do it. That is the church, and that is the history of the church on this issue. Orphanages have been opened up by more Christians than not. Most of the orphanages around the world, including the United States, were begun or still are run by churches and Christians. That is the heart of the church, and that is how we respond to this crisis, is not making big speeches and complaining about politics. Do politics. Vote your conscience. But what are you willing to do? And I think some people in this church have been avoiding the issue in their hearts, and you need to actually ask God, is this something you want me to do? It's interesting to me that most of the re reasons why people should not adopt or foster or warnings about it, if they keep talking long enough, they start to sound just like the arguments for abortion. It's hard, it's costly. It might not go well. It might mess up your life. Do you really have room or bandwidth for that? It's weird. And I'm not saying those things aren't true. Look, parenting is hard. <laughs> parenting costs money. I don't want to know how much it's cost me to raise three kids. I just don't add it up. It's hard, but we do it. And I would never look at my three wonderful children who were always wonderful, little cherubs of light in the world. 
and say, you know, that last one, I don't know, it was too much. No way. Those kids come up here every Sunday and we pray for them. There's not one of them I would do without. Think about it. There's not one of them that I would say is a burden or not a gift. So I want to provoke you this morning to consider, to pray and ask God, where whatever stage of life you're in, is that something you would have me do? Some of you are hearing from God right now, I can tell. So I'm just, I'm just poking at you a little bit. Fourthly, I think, and perhaps the greatest and most important one is you can, the biggest impact you can have is living your life in a Christ-centered way. And let me explain what I mean by that. Loving people well, ministering grace to people, confessing your own sin and weakness to one another, supporting single moms, being a stabilizing influence in the community, loving the outsider, maintaining concern for the poor. All of these things contribute. Inside the church, the greatest driver for abortions has been religious shame. A woman gets pregnant. She's embarrassed about how she became pregnant. And doesn't feel, it feels impossible to say, I'm pregnant and I need help. Because the environment she's in makes no room for sinners. Makes no room for sin. Doesn't have a clear, the gospel is not good news in their environment. And so they do what I described at the start, which is what you respond to shame by either getting angry or retreating. And so they retreat and they privately have the abortion, and no one ever knows. That is the story over and over and over and over and over again. So it matters how you talk about your own sin. It matters how you talk about sin in general. That the, and it matters the gospel that you present, that it actually be good, happy news. Because if there's not good news, that drives this issue in the church. It should bother us that that's the dynamic that we see over and over again. Outside the church, the biggest driver seems to be poverty and the single parent households that tend to go along with that. Mom gets pregnant, doesn't have any support, doesn't have any money, lives in terrible poverty, sees no way to do this meaningfully or with any joy whatsoever. Has nobody, no man to help. No, no family to support. And she, for those reasons, goes and has the abortion. Being a blessing to single-parent households, remembering the poor is a powerful remediation of some of the problems that motivate these abortions. It's not enough to just scream at the world angrily saying abortion is murder and walking away and doing nothing. Can you imagine Jesus doing that? Jesus waded into the sea of humanity. And he stood in the muck and the mire and in the poverty and in the broken place. And he declared that he was the answer to that muck and to that brokenness. He did not stand outside of it and cast dispersion and even speak the truth from outside. 
He didn't stay on his throne in heaven in the clean, tidy perfection of heaven and speak down and say, get it right. Instead, he came to us, right? Isn't that what Christianity is? We, didn't, we couldn't get to him, so he came to us. I hope you can see that how you live and how you talk about yourself and how you talk about these issues is as important as what you actually believe about them. Yet at the same time, the answer to this is not to refuse to say the truth about the issue. Again, nearly one million babies per year just in the United States. It's a modern-day holocaust. Honestly, if you put the, it puts Hitler and Stalin to shame. The further the gospel saturates our lives and the lives of our communities, the more the number goes down. So let me ask you this. When was the last time you confessed any sin to anybody? Any weakness to anyone? When was the last time you said to even a friend in private, I'm really struggling with this or that? Because you know that that's not only good for you, but it sets a tone. It sets a tone for your community, for your relationships, that says, hey, I've got some issues too, and God can deal with all of them. Or have you been part of creating an environment where in a culture where saying something negative about yourself or confessing any kind of sin about yourself is the scariest thing you can imagine. That is not how the church is supposed to be. Is your representation of the good news actually good news to everyone or is it only good news to those that already believe it? So I want to provoke you this morning I want you to be burdened over this issue. I want you to know what God says about this issue, but I also want, I want you to hear from God about what to do about it. And it starts with, do you believe the gospel? If you're walking around with shame over this issue or some other, I think you need to deal with it this morning. And I've been racking my brain trying to think of a way to deal with shame effectively without saying anything to anyone. (laughs) I don't think there is a way. There's something about bringing things out into the light. And so we're going to make people available this morning to you, men and women. Um, And I just feel like we need a revolution in this area. Of being, if there's something that you're like, if someone found this out about me, it would be the end of me. That thing is something you need to address. And that thing, in addressing it, you create a beautiful culture around you that creates freedom in other people to do the same thing. The last, it would devastate me if I found out that someone had an issue like a pregnancy that was in this body and was so scared to say something that they went out and removed the baby instead of saying something. 
it would devastate me if I found out that someone in this church was struggling with something like same-sex attraction or some other thing that was the proclivity in them that, that seems like it's too faux pas to tell anybody. And so instead, I'll just keep it under wraps and, and eventually it's just going to eat me away and they slowly leave the community. I hate that. And so I want to provoke us this morning to not just have an opinion about abortion, but to actually think about what kind of environment and I'm, am I creating around me regarding these kind of issues. And so I, I want to implore you, we're going to sing a song in just a minute. I want to, I want to tell you, we're going to have people up here standing here awkwardly by themselves. And I want to encourage you to come at any point. It can be now, it can be while we're singing, it can be after the service, but to not leave this morning with something that's lingering in your soul that you're like, if people found this out, it would be the end of me. And to come and confess it. And in saying it out loud and someone else hearing it and then telling you, you know, God, Jesus paid for that. And to pray with you. That's freedom. If you're a woman here this morning who's had an abortion and you're ashamed of it, I want to tell you, nobody's going to beat you over the head with their Bible and condemn you. They're going to tell you the truth. They're going to give you good news. If you're a man here and you were a participant in that kind of, in that in your life where you encouraged it or paid for it or whatever, I want to also encourage you the same way. Don't walk around with that on your shoulders. Amen? So why don't we stand up together and I'd like to pray. If I could have some our prayer volunteers to come up and maybe just kind of hang out on either side. Um, and if there's not room... Then you can go to the back if you want. Let's pray together. God, I ask you right now to, um, first of all, just Speak to all of us about shame. It seems like so often the world gives better news than the church does. And that's just completely insane. Because the good news of the world is a lie. And it leads to death. God, you alone have truly good, happy news. That you have not left us alone. You came down and you have come to us. And you come to us with the truth. You come to us with mercy and grace. You come to us with life in the midst of so much death. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be a minister of Christ to everyone here this morning. 
that we wouldn't just think biblically, but we would act biblically. God, make this a house of truth and grace, of word and spirit. God, it will be a house of freedom and a house of joy. God, I pray for anyone here where this topic at all is like a massive trigger for them. That you would bring healing and redemption in that place this morning. God, I pray for courage to confess sin that has gripped us and become like a, like a tool of the enemy to at any time he wants to, he just brings it up to, and brings it to mind and we shrink back into wanting to hide in shame. God, I pray that you would release us, bring freedom over those sorts of things. Whether it's things we've done in our past or things we're tempted with now. God, create in this church family an environment of grace and mercy. That we would be lovers of the truth and speakers of the truth. And that we would speak as we prayed last night at the worship night. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. God, I pray for uh, anyone here that is pricked by the Holy Spirit to pursue foster care or adoption, Lord, that you would make a way for that, provide the finances, provide the resources they need. God, that we would be a family full of adopted kids. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.